Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes it seems as though words are just words. You know, we, we speak thousands of words every day. We may write thousands of words every day. But they are just words. They're just puffs of air. Until we step back and think about it a little bit and realize that words are actually more than that. There is, there is power in words. There is something about words that can, can do great damage and something about words that can, that can bring about great good. There is significance to words. I, I once heard uh, Dr. Dennis Kinlaw talk about this, and he said that, he said, one day it occurred to me that, that the greatest change in my life, apart from when I opened my heart to Christ, started with just two puffs of air. He said, we've since, long since lost the marriage license, we've got five children, seven grandchildren, a couple more on the way, and what started all of it? Just two puffs of air. He said, she looks at me and says, you said it. He said, I look at her and say, you said it. All of that, just two puffs of air, three little letters, two words. And I pondered that for a long time about the fact that, that I, I think that's because words have life. When someone, when someone says something affirming to us, we in that moment realize words have life. When someone criticizes us, we know in that moment words have life. There is power in words. They are not just puffs of air. And I think it's that idea that, that made me rethink the 18th chapter of John's gospel. Because this chapter, which is, which is the lead up to the actual crucifixion of Jesus, has a lot of, of words in it that are more than just puffs of air. And particularly, I was thinking about the words of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say a lot here. But what he says is powerful and full of life and I think worthy of our attention. And so over the course of the six weeks in Lent, we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus says here in the lead up to the cross. And we begin today with the encounter of the people coming to arrest him. It's interesting to me that as they come, Jesus, who the other gospel writers tell us has just finished an hour or more of prayer, intense prayer, when he sees them coming, he moves toward them. I think if it were me, I would be trying to move away from them. John says he knew why they were there. He knew the purpose of their coming, and yet he moves toward them, and he asks them, who are you looking for? I don't think Jesus is simply asking a question. I think behind, underneath that question, and the fact that he moves toward them, I think Jesus is subtly sending a note to them, a love note to them, to, to ask them to step back and to say, do you really want to do this? Do you, are you thinking about what you're doing? Are you realizing where this is headed, not just in this moment, but for your life? Is this really what you want to do? 
And there is something in every one of us that we need to continually be asking ourselves as we encounter Jesus and come to Jesus, are, are we at the place where we should be? One of, the, one of the, the, the points of Lent is to lead us to step back from all the busyness and all of the, 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 the ways of life to step back and to do some evaluation, to think, to ponder. Because all of us are in this crowd in one way or another. Dale Bruner says that, that there's a sense in which all, of, all, of, uh, pe- all people are represented here. You have the, the, the Gentiles of Rome... And you have the Jewish people of God, and you even have, in his opinion, a representative of the unfaithful church. When you think about Judas, who spent all of these years with Jesus, and yet he is at the center of betraying him. And there's something uh, that we encounter Jesus, it matters how we come to him. And, and it causes us to ponder, step back, think, why are we here? What are we doing? When Jesus asked the question, who are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to them, I am he. The words, I am he, really in the Greek, ego eimi. And, and it, 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 these, these, this phrase is so significant for the Jewish people. It takes them back. The minute they hear those words, it will take every Jew back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is the, gives us the account of Moses uh, and, the, and the burning bush and, and meeting God. And in that moment, God calling him to go and be his, his man to the Egyptians to rescue his people and to bring them out of slavery. And after God lays out what he wants Moses to do, Moses says to him, well, they're going to ask me who sent me. What do I tell them? And God says, tell them, in our English translations, it's usually I am who I am or I, I will be who I will be. In the Greek translation, in the Septuagint, God says, you tell them, my name is Ego Eimi. I am. And when Jesus says, it, uh, one commentator says, this is the most, most significant definition of who Jesus is. I am. And the moment Jesus speaks those words, all of these people who come to arrest him, their knees buckle and they fall to the ground. There is something about that name that has such power because it connects to the God who indeed rescues his people out of Egypt, who parted the waters, who set them up in the promised land, who who exhibits his power over and over and over again. And all it takes is for Jesus to speak those two words And they fall to the ground. There is power in Jesus. Sometimes when we read the stories of of the cross, there is a tendency in us, and some people interpret it this way, to think that that it reveals Jesus' weakness. That Jesus is powerless and helpless, and and there's nothing he can do about what these people want to do to him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus has all power. He has so much power, all he has to do is say, the, say I am he. And everybody falls down. And I suspect that, that the, something about that, that again, Jesus is saying to them, stop and think about what you're doing. Stop and think about who I am. Is this really the direction you want to go? 
I wonder sometimes if, if, we, if God doesn't either allow us or cause us to be, to be knocked on our backside sometimes from life. Not to intimidate us, but to get our attention. To cause us to stop and think, what am I doing? Is this direction I really want to go? Are these the decisions I really want to make? Because the reality is, they are leading me not toward Jesus, but away from Jesus. And so Jesus says, I am he. They fall down. They get back up. But it strikes me that in that moment, when all of these people are lying on the ground and they're helpless, it would have been the perfect moment for Jesus to run. I think if it were me, I would have run. I think I would have thought, God, thank you for this great gift of getting me out of this. I mean, because the honest truth is, when we get into difficult circumstances, the most natural thing we want to do is to find a way to escape. It's normal. It's human. There's a scene in, some of you may remember the movie, it's probably almost 20 years ago, came out, Minority Report. And it's, a, it's a kind of an odd story about, about how the police have figured out a way to, to know crimes that are going to be committed before they're committed, and so they're able to stop the crime from being committed and yet still arrest the person who was going to do it. It's very futuristic. But in the course of this whole of the movie, Tom Cruise, who plays the star of this movie, his name is John, uh, he, he's at the forefront of the group, that, that's the, of the police force, and tables begin to turn, and there's a conspiracy against him, and he finds himself now being chased by the very people he used to work with. And there is a scene in which they, they are looking for him, they find him, and, and they chase him, and he, gets, he runs down an alley, and he's trapped. And he's standing there in the alley, all of these soldiers around him, guns on him, and, and he's, you can tell he's looking around, trying to figure out a way to get out of it. And one of the people, one of his close friends, who he formerly used to work with, keeps saying to him, John, don't run. Don't run, John. John, don't run. And Tom Cruise looks back at him and says, hey, everybody runs. And there is something true about that. There is something in us. And here's the thing. It's human, and often it's the wisest choice to make. You look back at the life of Jesus. There are times in Jesus' life when he is at a point where the, the crowd wants to take his life and he escapes because the timing isn't right. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with looking for ways to escape with, with in a sense, running from danger. In fact, it's often the wisest thing to do. And there are moments when God provides that way of escape, and the Scripture talks about that, and we ought to take advantage of that. But in this particular moment, Jesus, knowing what the plan that he and the Father and the Spirit had designed from the foundation of the world, this was the moment not to run. This was the moment to stay. And he does. And he stays not because he has no choice, he stays not because it's fate. He stays not because it's out of his control. He stays because he loves. Jesus stays in that moment because it is, it is the, the movement toward the loving plan of redemption of all of creation that he and the Father and the Spirit had designed. 
And in this moment, the call is to stay. Despite Jesus knowing where staying is going to lead him, he stays because he loves. We sang uh, some songs this morning about the power of God and the power of Jesus. And what I find fascinating is that this story does not lack a description of the power of Jesus. What we find is how Jesus uses his power. He uses his power to love. He uses his power to voluntarily, willingly, lovingly give himself away for you and me and for all of his creation. They get back up. And Jesus says, so let me ask you again, who are you looking for? I suspect they're all a little hesitant to answer the second time. Like, you say it, you answer I'm not answering them. But finally they do. And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And I've been thinking about that question, who are you looking for? There is something significant about that question. It's the same question, in a sense, that Jesus asked two of John's disciples way back in the first chapter of the gospel when they, they encounter him and they've heard John speak, John the Baptist speak of him. And they come to Jesus and he says, he says in that moment, what are you looking for? But he's really saying, who are you looking for? It's the same question that, that uh, Jesus asked Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. She's in the garden and she believes Jesus' body's been stolen. And there is Jesus standing there. She thinks he's the gardener. And he says to her, who are you looking for? There is something significant about that question. It is one of the great questions of life. Who are you looking for? It implies that there is a searching in us. It implies that there is a seeking in us. That there is something in us that we have not yet found and we are looking for it. And they again answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And the thing that I find here is that they are looking for Jesus as a human being. They're looking to arrest this person. But they're not really looking for Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And I think that's part of the problem. Is that they think they are coming to arrest a man. When in reality, they are coming to arrest the very Son of God, the Messiah himself. And they miss it. And I suspect it's because they're not looking for the right thing. See, when they've talked about coming to get the Messiah, they are looking for the Messiah that they've created in their image. Not the Messiah in God's image. And you and I have a tendency to want to, to, want to encounter God and, and, live and deal with God and deal with Jesus in such a way that if we are really honest, we're trying to shape God into our image instead of rejoicing in the fact that God has shaped us in his. We want a God that we can manipulate. We want a God that we can control. We want a God who will affirm all of our ideas. We want a God who will... Bring judgment on our enemies. We want God who will say to us, do whatever you want to do, it's fine. But 
That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes not to tell us just do whatever you want or to just affirm our ideas. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to transform all of our ideas. He comes to transform our lives and all that we do. He comes to make us new creatures, set free. And we so often miss it. It makes me think of what John writes in the very beginning of the gospel when he begins by saying, and the word was God, the word was with God, the word was with God in the beginning, and he goes on to talk about Jesus as the word. And then you come to chapter, or to verse five, and he talks about the fact that, that the light of the world was there and they, they missed it. One translation says that they, they can't extinguish it, but others say the darkness has not understood it. They can't see it. And it makes me think of the, of the person I heard who said that it's such an irony that they come with lanterns and torches to arrest the light of the world. He's right in front of them. But because they don't like what he says, because they don't want to surrender to him, because they don't want to give their lives to him, because they don't want the kind of gospel that he has brought to them, they miss it. And during this season of Lent, I think one of the great questions that you and I need to be asking ourselves is who is the God we're looking for? Are we looking for a God that we can shape in our image? Or are we looking for a God who shapes us into his? It's not just that they are looking for Jesus, it's how they're looking for Jesus that matters. And the same thing is true for you and me. This is the God who can speak a word, ego me, I am, and, and have all the power of the world. Even in just those two words. And yet the God who is good news because he comes to redeem us and to transform us and to save us. You see, I think the ultimate irony of this whole story is that these men and, and women, people who are looking for Jesus, don't realize that the one they're looking for is looking for them. The one that they're searching for is searching for them. The one they're seeking is seeking them. Over and over and again, throughout the Old Testament and on through the teachings of Jesus and all through the writings of Scripture, we discover that Yahweh, the creator God, is not waiting for us to seek him. He is continually seeking us. In chapter 10 of John's gospel, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd comes to seek and to save the lost. And it doesn't matter where we are on our journey with Christ. We all need to be reminded again and again and again that following Jesus is seeking the one, following the one, looking for the one who is already seeking us, looking for us, loving us, with us. What we find in this story is that, that God is revealed 
as the great God of all the universe, the creator of all things, who comes for us and reveals himself, despite all of his power, in love, in grace, in mercy. As I've been reading this story, the the image that keeps coming to my mind is is, uh, the... The familiar story in the Chronicles of Narnia, that first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When the children are exploring Narnia for the first time, and in their exploration, they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And and they sit and they listen to the beavers telling the story about Narnia, and they keep talking about this lion named Aslan. One of the children, Susan, says, so Aslan, is, is he safe? I think I would be nervous meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, well, I, I can't imagine anyone um, coming face to face with Aslan and their knees not knocking, except maybe people who are braver than most are just plain silly. And then Lucy says, so that he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver, you can almost see him kind of rising up in his chair, and he looks at her and he says, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this is the God at whose table we come today. The God who invites us to come and through his power and his grace receive his mercy, and find hope in transformation and new life in him. Father, we thank you for your great power that leads you to the cross of grace and mercy and freedom. Father, we pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the cup and the bread of which we partake today. May it be food for our souls. And may it be faith and hope in each of us. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.